Let me ask you a question this morning as we get started. Um, what, what do you think you're, what are you known for? Like, what is your reputation? Not, like, not what you want it to be. Like, what do you actually think it is? Like, when people think of you, what do you think the main thing they think of is? Like, what's your reputation? I don't know if we think about that very often. Um, I know we, we, in our kind of modern sensibilities, spend a lot of time trying to craft that um, with kind of social media and what we kind of put out there. Anybody can kind of put out who they are or a curated version of that, right? So what is your reputation? What would people say that you are? Um, I'm not going to make any judgment on that, but what, what would it be? We put a lot of time and energy into kind of crafting that, into being an influencer, whatever that is, right? Um, people actually do that for a living. People will gain enough followers however they do that so that other people, corporations, will give them free stuff, send them free places, and then they influence us to um, be like them in some kind of way. But we all have a reputation, whether you like it or not. We all hope we have a good reputation. Um, and the church is no different. Wonder, I wonder what people think of when they think of Village Church, what our reputation is. Um, is it a good one? Is it a bad one? Mixed reviews? Probably mixed reviews. But here we see Jesus, and he's writing to these seven churches. And we see that each church has a reputation. Um, and sometimes that reputation is something that Jesus commends. And other times, like our, our letter today, it's something that Jesus says, your reputation is actually way off from reality. It's not actually based in reality anymore. Um, and he comes. And so here we have this church in Sardis. Uh, this is the dying church, or we might even call it the zombie church. Uh, it, it looks like it's alive, um, but it, it really isn't. Um, and this is one of the churches that Jesus doesn't commend in any way. He doesn't have anything good to say about them. And so this morning might feel a little bit heavy, um, but that's just the nature of teaching through the Bible. Sometimes the passages are there to challenge. They're there to press. Sometimes they're there to encourage and uplift us and, and strengthen us. Uh, and I, I actually hope this does that too. I think there, you can be challenged and be encouraged uh, at the same time. And there's much to be uh, hopeful for even in a passage like this. Um, the question that we've been considering in this series is, what does Jesus think of our church? What does Christ think of our church? And that's the assessment that matters most concerning your personal life and our life collectively. It's not what other people think that really matters. It's not what other Christian leaders think that ultimately matters. But ultimately, what does Jesus think? And here we have a church in Sardis who would have received really good reviews by many uh, people of their day because externally, it still looked impressive. They had a good reputation. They had a reputation of being alive, Jesus says. They had a name for that. But he says, in fact, in reality... They were dead or dying. This is the church that probably would have been on the cover of, you know, Outreach Magazine or whatever, the kind of church growth kind of magazine. The leaders probably would have been speaking at conferences. 
Their social media game would have just been just right, just on point. Would have had a great website, real good PR kind of uh, system in place. A lot of people during that time would have thought, man, the church in Sardis, that's the church that's really getting it done. That was the reputation that they had. They had one for being alive. And yet Jesus, with his eyes like fire, as we saw in week one, these eyes that pierce through the facade and see what's really going on, that peer into our hearts, that can see what's really going on spiritually, the things that we don't see, has a, a, a piercing evaluation, and it's very different from their reputation. Again, in each of the churches so far, Jesus has had something positive to say. But here he just says, I know your works. And that's it. He actually then goes on to say, and they're incomplete in the sight of God in verse 2. In the sight of people, they may look good. People revered the church in Sardis, but Jesus actually rebukes them. It's not all as what it appeared to be. It wasn't all that it had cracked up to be. It had accolades from everyone except the person that actually mattered, Jesus. This is in contrast with the church in Philadelphia, which we'll see. A church with very little power but receives nothing but commendation from Jesus. And so the question for us is, do we want the reputation or the reality? And it's okay to have a reputation as long as it's based in what's actually real. <laughs> as long as it's the reality. Are we more concerned about the reputation of, of what we put out for people to think or are we more concerned about the reality of what's really going on? And what's really going on a lot of times is harder because you actually have to stop and look. You have to dig around. You have to do some self-examination. And if you're like me, when I do that, there's things I don't like, I don't want to see. And I'd much rather kind of ignore them, hide them, bury them so no one else can see them. Do we really want to be alive or do we only want name recognition? Do we care more about what other people think than what Jesus thinks? So my prayer for us as individuals, but collectively, is that we are living really for the Lord's pleasure, for his approval and not the approval and praise of other people, because it's before him that we stand. It's, be, it's before him that we have to give an account of how we've lived our lives. The opinion of other people isn't unimportant. It's important. It matters. But we shouldn't rate it too highly. We shouldn't prioritize it over what the Lord thinks. Their praise should not inflate us. And their criticism shouldn't crush us. We should be even keeled in that sense because we look to Jesus and what he thinks actually matters. And so let's go through. We have, we've had the same outline for each of these. Um, uh, it's the authoritative introduction that we'll start with. And we see this in the first part of, of verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis... Um, so Sardis, just to give you a little background, was about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It was one of the oldest cities in the province. It had been founded about 1,200 years before Christ. Um, it was the kind of capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Um, it was destroyed by an earthquake and then rebuilt, given this new life by the emperor Tiberius. And this city had fame. It had wealth. Um, it took pride in its Acropolis, um, this temple to Sibyl. But what it was also known for, it took pride in its necropolis. Um, I forgot to show you my holiday picks, um, as people have been referring them. Not holiday picks, I was there doing research. Um, 
But if you go there today, um, uh, as I did, you can actually see this uh, uh, necropolis. It, it was called the Cemetery of a Thousand Hills. You could actually see um, uh, Asardis sits up on a hill up on top of this mountain uh, top, and the burial mounds were visible from about seven miles away. Even to this day, you can see the white stones kind of dotted along the hills. And as you come in um, to the city, um, there's the kind of main part of the city, but you go through this sprawling cemetery, essentially, this sprawling uh, necropolis. But the city, however, had seen its best days. Its best days of Sardis were in its past, and it was kind of living on its reputation. And this is really the, the picture that Jesus is drawing from because the church is just like its city. It's living off a of past glory while it's in decay. It just doesn't know it yet. It was a spiritual graveyard, though it looked alive. This is what Jesus' words were to the Pharisees, remember? He called them whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed. They're beautiful sep- uh, uh, um, sepulchers. Is that the right word? Yeah. Yeah, that's the right word. Um, I'm a little jet lagged, so I hope 80% of this makes sense. If I can get to 80%, I'll be happy. Um, the whitewashed, beautiful tombs on the outside. And you could go and you go, oh, wow, this is beautiful. It's ornate. But what's going on in the inside of that thing is a rotting corpse. And if that thing weren't sealed up, you'd be smelling what's on the inside. It's death on the inside. And this is the picture that we get of this church. It looks beautiful. It looks like it's alive. It looks like everything is great on the outside. Sardis also had this city, and it boasted in its natural defenses. Because it was kind of elevated, it had these, what they thought were these unscalable cliffs. And the arrogance of them led to their defeat twice, because they failed to post guards at their most dangerous places. And again, this is this kind of parable of this church who's urged to be alert, urged to be awake, Christ is fully aware of their condition. He goes on then to says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, this seven spirits of God isn't seven different spirits. Um, the, the kind of language and the word pictures of Revelation, Revelation's a different type of book um, than a lot of the rest of the Bible. The second half of Daniel will be similar to this kind of apocalyptic language uh, with different symbols and things like that. When he refers to the seven spirits, he's referring to seven as this number of completion or wholeness, fullness. It's the complete and perfect Holy Spirit. It's not seven different spirits, but the perfect, complete. It's the spirit in all of his fullness. It's perhaps an allusion to Isaiah chapter 11, Zechariah 4, that refers to the different kinds of aspects of the spirit of God. The spirit, this phrase emphasizes the spirit's manifold power, his omnipresence, the fullness of his wisdom, and of his power. This is the same spirit that makes dry bones come to life. And it's the same spirit that you and I have if we're followers of Jesus. The same spirit, Paul would say, that raised Jesus from the dead. A spirit of resurrection. And this is the spirit this church needs. And he says the seven stars, and we've looked at this before in in week one. These seven stars are angels. They're the representation or the personification of these churches. And he has them. This is a reminder that the churches are in Christ's possession. They belong to him. And so we have this picture of Jesus holding the seven, the, 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 the fullness of the spirit. And he holds the churches. And our prayers is that he would bring those together, that he would bring his hands together, that the church would be full of his spirit, that we'd be full of the wisdom of his spirit, full of the spirit's power, full of his presence. 
John Stott said this, we must pray in the Spirit, preach in the Spirit, worship in the Spirit, live and walk in the Spirit. A stale church can be refreshed by him, a sleepy church awakened, a weak church strengthened, and a dead church made alive by the Spirit of God. And this is what Jesus is emphasizing. The point is, the church revitalization or replanting requires a spiritual intervention. Part of my role with Acts 29 is to assess new church planters. And so there's a whole battery of assessments that they go through. Um, Because you're trying to assess, um, are these the right people? Do they have the right character? Do they have the right understanding? Are they in the right context? All of these different things that we want to do. And all of those are good and right and important. But unless the Spirit of God is present um, in planting or in replanting, revitalizing a church, we can have all the latest data, we can have all the latest research, we can have all the latest methods, and it's all by our own strength. If whatever gets planted, if whatever we do isn't by the Spirit, it's doomed from the beginning. It's the risen Christ that can raise dying churches by the power of the Spirit. That might be through new leadership. It might be through a faithful few, as we'll see um, here. It might be revival, take over the whole place. Wouldn't that be amazing? It might be those who profess faith, but don't actually possess it, actually are regenerated by the Spirit of God. This is Jesus' church. He can bring judgment, but he can also bring life. Life where there isn't any. Life from death. And then we have the all-knowing evaluation. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. The reality is, is you're dead. It's this brief introduction, but it's penetrating, isn't it? Notice they don't have any deeds. Not that Jesus counts. Not that any that matter. They just have a reputation. This is hype over substance. You have a name for being alive, but it's a name only. This is, again, this reputation, this is probably a church with size, an influential city, they had money, there was activity of some kind, right? We would, in our day, we would look to that church as a a flagship kind of church. But here we see looks can be deceiving. Things aren't all that they've cracked up to be. That's like a body with cancer that you don't know is there. You feel healthy, you look healthy, but on the inside, you're dying, Many churches focus on the reputation only to, relax, only to lack the reality. One of the phrases we use in, in I do in our staff uh, meetings and our elders meetings is that we want to be substance over hype. In an age of hype, in an age where everything's amazing and every Sunday's going to be life-changing, it can be very easy to get kind of sucked into hyping things up. Now, I do think every Sunday will be life-changing, accumulatively. <laughs> Right? You keep coming here week after week after week. We keep sitting under the teaching of God's word. We allow the Holy Spirit to bind us together in community so that we can sharpen one another, that we can sanct- help sanctify one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. That will change your life. But just take one Sunday out, and most of us will be like, well, okay, yeah. It's like eating, right? How many meals do you remember? I mean, I can remember a few. I've had some like, amazing ones. I don't remember most of them, but they were all good for me. They all nourished me. I needed to eat. I was going to say all of them. I didn't need to eat all of them. I, I needed to eat most of those. I'm working on that. Thank you very much. 
Ran 10 times out of the 14 days I was gone. <laughs> substance over hype, Lucas. Substance over hype. <laughs> right? There are many visible features that might look impressive in a church that we might want to highlight. And there's nothing wrong. Listen, we should celebrate what God is doing. Right? We should highlight what God is doing and give him the praise and the glory and the honor for that. But that's different, isn't it? from trying to hype up and whip up something that actually isn't there. And this can take place in all kinds of churches, right? This can take place in high church uh, formalism with their liturgy, vestments, all the smells and bells, all of that. I like a lot of that. But it doesn't necessarily mean the Lord is on the move. And it can happen in low church informalism, the come as you are, that's more us, a little more casual. That doesn't mean necessarily that the spirit is there and the church is alive. Or in traditionalism, right? Everything is kind of exactly how it should be. It might be very Christian-y. Is that a word? But it can be full of hypocrisy. It can happen in more emotional expressions of faith. And it can happen in quiet, non-emotional expressions. It doesn't matter what kind and style of church we have. It doesn't matter the size, whether it's big or whether it's small, as we've seen in these churches. Small churches can be faithful. Big churches can be faithful. And both big and small and whatever style churches meet in can both be faithful and unfaithful. Jesus knows. No matter what goes on in the outside, no matter what style is presented, Jesus knows the reality of what's actually going on. He sees. And Sardis, for a variety of reasons, has this reputation but they didn't have the reality. And so Jesus says, you're dead, right? And we can, cha- we can trace this tendency all throughout the Bible, Bible. Hypocrisy, pious exteriors, Sermon on the Mount, that was a big theme of that, wasn't that, that we looked at? Pastors, church leaders are vulnerable to this as well. Um, was reminded of that even while we were away, that it's very easy to do my job, to stand up here week after week, technically say all the right things, but have a heart that is growing colder in the Lord. How many times have we seen church leaders fall? Church leaders that you would say, I actually agree with everything that guy taught. That happened this week, a very visible kind of evangelical leader, in his own words, said, I'm not a Christian anymore. I've fallen away from the faith. It happens. We can have an appearance of godliness, but devoid of its power, as, as Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 3. That's terrifying. We have an appearance of godliness, but devoid of its power. The minor prophets address this regularly. These assemblies would get together, and God would say, I'm sick and tired of your assemblies. Please stop gathering for worship. All the incense that you offer is a stench in my nostrils. Because it's all hype. It's all a show. There's no substance. It's not real. John Stott again says, Sardis may have been the first church in history of Christianity to be characterized by nominal Christianity. Its members belong to Christ by name, but not in heart. And we live in a country that has this great reputation, doesn't it, of Christianity? The 1858-59 revival, where most of the churches across the north were planted. Thriving gospel witness to where we are now. A different situation. Church overall in decline. 
nominal Christianity kind of sets in. We live off the past instead of hungering for God now in the future. What was the cause of this? Well, I think we have a few clues that are given in the next few verses. Um, So he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So Tony Burita, a friend of mine, we um, taught some of these books together in Turkey. He says it this way, four marks of kind of a dying church um, from this text, and I think he's, I think he's right. Um, the first one is a mark of arrogance. They were living on previous glory. They were living on a past reputation. They weren't humbly, humbly desperate for the Spirit's work among them. They had stopped being desperate for the Holy Spirit to be among them, relying on His power. They, in their arrogance, just kind of thought, whatever we're doing will just continue to kind of go on. And that's such a, an easy place to get to if we're not careful. We start in a good place. We start by relying on the Holy Spirit. You need, a whole, you need the Lord in, in, a, in a church plant, right? In those early days, He's all you got. But then you mature a little bit. Oh, man, we have a building now. Yeah, it's mostly kind of full. I mean, we even planted another church. Oh, we must be good then. We must be good to go. We stop relying on the Holy Spirit. We stop pressing in. We get into a rut. We arrogantly think we've got this sorted on our own. The next thing that we see is spiritual lethargy. This is why he says they need to wake up. They need to wake up. They lost their kind of hunger for the things of the Lord. They'd just kind of fallen asleep. They weren't hungry for that anymore. Um, one of the things that I saw when I was in, in the hospital with, with uh, cancer stuff, one of the signs of death is, is, a, is this kind of loss of appetite. You get to a place where you just stop eating or you can't eat anymore. That's one of the main signs that we look for. Um, when my dad passed away, we, he was in the States. We're here and you're trying to, in that weird spot of when do you go? You want to go before he dies. You don't want to go too, too early that you that you miss funeral stuff and all of that. And uh, eventually he was on palliative care and the hospice was like, okay, he's, he's not eating anymore. You have a matter of days. Because once you stop, once the hunger stops, once you stop feeding that hunger, it's just a matter of time. You stop getting nourished. You fall into this lethargy. Churches that are alive are still hungry. They're still feeding off the word of God. They're still being nourished by the Holy Spirit. And a person with little vitality or no vitality can come to a church service every single week. They just come, think, well, compared to everything else in life, this is of little importance. It's just something I do. There's no real spiritual hunger that's there. They haven't sought the Spirit's filling in their life, right? We're told to be filled with the Spirit, and we believe that you're baptized in the Spirit once, but there's a filling of the Spirit that's an ongoing thing as we continue to walk in repentance. Third thing, they had just loss of gospel amazement. They just kind of got bored with it, probably. He says, remember what you received. They had forgotten that. They had forgotten the gospel. They had lost the wonder of it. Listen to Philippians 3.12. This is how you can hear the wonder still in, in Paul's conversion. He says, I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Paul never lost the wonder of what God did, did for him. Never got over that. Never stopped proclaiming it. Even when he was in prison, he was writing about it. He was witnessing to the guards. He, not, he never got over the wonder of Jesus making him his own. And then we also see this lack of missional engagement. I think we get this from what's not said. What's not said about this church is what's said about the churches that are commended. There's nothing about any kind of persecution in this at all. There's no opposition mentioned at all. That's probably because they were too inoffensive to operate in any kind of opposition. More than likely compromised their witness in order to fit in. The offense of the cross has ceased to exist. They were too harmless to be persecuted. Verse 5 kind of hints at this problem when Jesus says that he'll confess the names of the conquerors before the Father. That is, those who are not ashamed to confess him as Lord, Jesus wouldn't be embarrassed to confess them. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount as well. They had drifted from their purpose. And it's easy. It's easy to kind of have missional drift, isn't it? Institutions do this. Denominations do this. Churches do this. Businesses, universities, it happens all the time. And when that happens, expiration dates get marked. It's only a matter of time. Many people think going to church is like going to the cinema. We kind of go, we watch the thing, it's a bit entertaining. If it's a good movie, you might think about it for a while. You might, might have to like reflect on that. Hmm. But it's not. <laughs> Being a part of the church is like joining the army. It's training. You're in, you're in a battle. It's being on mission. It's being alert. It's being aware that there's an enemy. And so we continue to push forward. We want to plant churches, not just, not just so we can pat ourselves on the back. We want to plant churches because that's what's needed. And a church that's not sending is eventually going to be ending. And this is Sardis. If we flip those negative things positively then, a living church is a humble church. It's not one that's arrogant. It's one that's hungry for the Spirit of God. It's not spiritual, spiritually apathetic and lethargic. It's in awe of the gospel, and it's faithful in bearing witness to Jesus. And that could look like a liturgical church. It could look like low church. It might be big. It might be small. It might be a church that has lots of programs. It might be a church that has few could be in this country or any country in the world. And then he gives them the appropriate exhortation. The good news for a dying church is that Jesus offers them hope. It's not too late. He doesn't say, forget about it, let it die. Now that's what will happen if they, don't, if they don't heed the words of Jesus. But Jesus isn't giving in in great compassion in great love for his church, he gives instruction for revitalization. And there's hope for any dying church if they'll pay attention to the instructions of Jesus. And there's hope for us as individuals if we feel like we are being lethargic, if we've lost our amazement at the gospel, if we feel like we're spiritually kind of waning. There's hope for us as well. There's hope for real spiritual life and not just a facade of one. And the advice is so simple for each of these churches. The main instruction, we could say, is to wake up. 
say that because it's repeated in verse 3. And what's in the middle is the manner of this waking up, how they're supposed to do that. He gives them five different commands, and so let's look at those. First one, wake up. Be watchful in verse 2. So they have time. There is hope if they'll wake up, if they'll be watchful. Recognize that there's a problem. Recognize that they're actually in a spiritual battle, that there is a mission, not just to coast, not just to drift and fall asleep, not to live off yesterday's victories. He says, wake up, be watchful. And then he, 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 he uses this phrase uh, that Jesus would come like a thief. Now, there are other parts of the scripture that, that talk about Jesus coming like a thief when, when it's used in, uh, with the return of Christ in mind. We think of this in Matthew 24. But here Jesus is warning um, is immediate judgment that his judgment will come unexpectedly. They're to wake up to what's important. They're to wake in their hearts again to the good news of the gospel, the Spirit's work, to be on mission, the enemy's attack. They're not ready, even as their city wasn't ready. Their city thought they were fine. They they thought, listen, where we are with these cliffs, we, we can't be attacked. And their city was sacked twice. Because they failed to recognize the danger and post guards. Sardis could be likened to a sleepy church with a lot of kind of cultural Christians. It could be likened to a church that has a lot of anonymity, but no accountability, no real sense of community, no real sense of people knowing each other, no real sense of discipleship. And Jesus says it's time to come to your senses, to wake up. The most dangerous place often to be is in this place, to be in a religious atmosphere, but to have no spiritual life. See, if you're not in a spiritual atmosphere, there's no real danger in you thinking that you are. One of the most dangerous places to be when you're spiritually dead is in a church, because you can, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're not dead yet. Well, I go to church. I, I must be a Christian. I must be a part of this. I do all the things that you know, Christians are, are meant to be doing. And yet this text would say, no, you can have the appearance of life. And it's dangerous because it's deceiving. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to the hospital and hanging out makes you a doctor. It can give you a sense of false assurance. Jesus reminds them the gospel is true. If we'll wake up, if we'll remember, if we'll embrace Jesus and live, that he's coming back and we don't want to be asleep. The second thing he says is strengthen what remains. So there is hope. There is a a remnant at Sardis. There are some who are still faithful, who are clothed in white. This uh, symbolism of being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. There was some life. And they were to strengthen what was there. They were to strengthen the remnant that was there. There was still time. Those who were alive were to nourish the weaker Christians, not despise them, not get frustrated and give up with them. They were to encourage the weak by word, by example, by prayer. And it's encouraging because an awakened minority can be used to lead the sleepy majority. 
Often a weakened minority can feel like giving up when the majority is disinterested, grumpy. But here they're told to stay at it, to strengthen what remains. Third, he says, remember what you have received and heard. Now, this is often we're told. Remember, remembering what you have received is shorthand for the gospel. Remember the good news. Remember what you have received, the apostolic teaching that was passed on to you. And I, I, it's not just the content of the gospel. There are plenty of lost people who could articulate the core of the gospel. But it's the manner in which it was received with joy in the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-6 puts it this way. Paul says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, not just the content of the gospel, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's not just the content. It's the manner in which that's received with power, with the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. It's actually doing something to us. And he tells them to keep on remembering and remember how you received it. A church will die eventually if they don't receive the gospel gladly, not just as a one-off, over and over again. And then he says, not just to receive it, keep it. Don't lose it. Keep it. Keep the gospel. Keep it at its forefront. Keep treasuring it. Keep being thankful for it. Keep guarding it. Keep proclaiming it. It, The gospel isn't just the beginning of how you become a Christian, right? It's not just the, Tim Keller says, it's not just the ABCs of Christian. It's not, the gospel isn't just how we become Christians and then we move on to other things. The gospel is the entirety of Christianity. And we walk in the gospel day after day after day. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's how we continue to grow. Paul says that we are to walk in the, in the manner in which we receive the gospel. We're to continue in that. And that leads us to five. The fifth thing they're meant to do is repent in verse three. Repent. And it's the good news of the gospel that keeps us malleable to repentance. We don't just repent one time of our sins, become a Christian, and then start doing kind of Christianly things while, while it's never repenting again. The Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance over and over again as we mature. I, I, hope, I hope we mature out of certain seasons of sin, but if you're like me, I'm like, whew, uh, the Lord in his goodness has kind of relieved me of that. And now I have this one, <laughs> right? It's just the next thing. We're, we are a well that never runs dry of ways to rebel against God. And so there's always opportunities for repentance. But the good news is there's always opportunities then for God to show his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, Romans 2. And so we continue to return to the gospel. We continue to live a life of repentance. And how serious does Jesus take this? He says, if they don't do these things, he will come like a thief. They're in danger of receiving an unexpected visitor. That's the thing about thieves is you never know when they're going to come. 
No one, thieves don't schedule appointments. Oh, what day is good for you to, you know, when won't you be home so I can come and rob you? They come when you, when you least expect it, when you don't know they're coming. And again, this isn't a statement about his second coming. In this text, it's a, it's a statement about judgment visiting this church. It's an urgent call to repentance for them to do that now. And he says there's still some in Sardis, there's still a few names who haven't sold their garments, who walk with me in white and are worthy. Some hadn't sold their garments. They hadn't just blended in with the culture. There was a small minority who was still boldly standing for Jesus. This idea of, of being clothed in white um, is symbolism of, of being justified by God. They are clothed in the righteousness of, of, of Jesus himself. They are worthy. They have believed in the one who is worthy. And so this is his resuscitation plan to bring them back to life. And then fourthly, we have this conclusion, the awe-inspiring conclusion. To the one who conquers, that is, to the one who will remain a Christian testimony in a hostile culture, the one who will repent of arrogance, seek the Lord in humility, the one who will wake up, regain a hunger for the things of God, if you'll regain the wonder of the gospel, keep those things, then you will receive these glorious rewards. And what are the rewards that he says? He says, first, they'll be clothed in white. This is, again, the symbolism of, of righteousness of Jesus by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7. Those who persevere in faithfulness show that they've been justified, that they're legitimately converted in that way. So the book of James would say, faith without works, which is this church, it seems like. They're claiming they're alive. They're claiming they have faith, but there's no works that Jesus recognizes. And, and Paul said, or James says, faith without that kind of works is actually dead. It's a dead faith. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Those that are clothed in white are those who persevere in faithfulness. He also says they'll never, he'll never blot out their name. That they have access to heaven. There will be some who have a reputation of being alive, but not actually enter the kingdom of God. Again, we looked at this in, in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? Lord, Lord, look at all these things we did from you. And he's like, I, I don't know you. But look at all the stuff. Look at all the activity. Uh, I don't know you. You might have your name on a church roll somewhere, but the most important place to have your name is registered in the book of life. There's numerous references to this book of life, Exodus 32, Psalm 68, Isaiah 4, Daniel 12, Luke 10, Philippians 4, Hebrews 12, all in all and all and all throughout the scripture. This book of life, this representation of those that are actually belonging to God. Um, Luke 10 is, is a great reference to this. Remember, Jesus sends out his disciples two by two. And then they come back and they're so excited because they were able to cast out demons and they were able to heal people and they were able to do all this sorts of stuff. And, and what's Jesus say to them? Hey, it's great that you were able to accomplish those things. That's amazing. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing that we should be excited about. That's the thing that we should rejoice in. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones 
quoted this verse. As he was dying in his later stages of his life, um, great Welsh preacher, he, he was a prolific writer, wrote many books, sermons, um, all this sorts of stuff. But, but towards the end of his life, he could only write about one hour a day. And I'm told he would get up and put on a, like a three-piece suit, and then he would sit and he would write for an hour, and that's about all he could do. And then he would have to like change out of his suit. I don't know why he wrote in a suit. Maybe it just made him a better writer. Maybe I should try that. And then he would have to go back to bed. And someone came to him and said, are you not discouraged? You're not able to do all, all, all the things that you were able to do, you weren't able to, you know, you're down to an hour a day. And he quoted this verse. He says, listen, I, I'm not excited. I'm not rejoicing in all the things that I used to be able to do and now I can't do. The thing that I'm rejoicing in is that my name is written in the book of life. And then he also says, confess his name before the Father and before his angels. I will confess his name before my fathers and before his angels. You remember when Stephen, we looked at in the book of Acts, is stoned. And as he's dying, he looks up to heaven and he sees heaven opened up. And he, he there sees Jesus standing as his witness. And Jesus says, he's mine. He's mine. To the faithful, Jesus says, you're mine. You belong to me. You'll be present with me. The world may reject you. The world may slander you. You may even, like, like Stephen, have to lose everything. But if we belong to Jesus, you gain something infinitely more important than people's approval. We gain union with Christ. I want to read this uh, verse that um, I've been coming back to over the last month or so um, from Hebrews chapter 10. There's been so much of this theme kind of coming through in many places, not just in the scripture, but also just in, in culture. So many people kind of either falling away from the faith. And I want us to think about Jesus's words here in Hebrews ten nineteen. He says, therefore, I'm sorry, let me, um, sorry, verse 32. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, Okay, former days when you were enlightened, you came to Jesus. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's incredible to me. People just plundered your stuff. And it didn't bother you because you knew you had something that they could never plunder, that they could never take away. Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is what Jesus is promising. You'll be clothed in white. Your name will be written in the book. I'll confess your name before the Father if you will endure. If you don't lose your confidence... If you'll wake up, if you'll remember, if you'll keep, if you'll strengthen, don't throw away your confidence. You'll receive what's promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. For my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. I won't confess him before the Father. 
But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is what Jesus is pleading for this church to do. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't be so arrogant that you stop relying on the Holy Spirit, that you think you've got this all sorted, that you can live off some kind of reputation. Our confidence isn't in our reputation. Our confidence isn't in our methods. Our confidence isn't in our, in our past successes or, or, or what God has done for us. We live now in the present. It's fresh manna every day. You can't collect that stuff for days and days and days. It doesn't work that way. It's new mercies every day. It's new grace every day. It's new repentance every day. And this is the word that goes out to Sardis and for us and for every other church across time and space. Wake up. Don't fall asleep. Declare your devotion to Jesus. He's worthy of our devotion. And so may we treasure Jesus and his gospel. May we live by the power of his spirit. May we bear witness to his name unashamedly. May we pursue the reality of spiritual life and not just some kind of facade, hype over substance, but we may have the substance not just the reputation of life, but the real deal. God help us.